You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. It is Wednesday evening, time for American Winer on PodcastDetroit.com. How is everybody doing? My guest tonight joining us from a parking lot in West Virginia with a Jeep full of uh, compost and manure is Mr. Robert Tunnell. Robert, how you doing? Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for uh, tolerating my obsessive compulsive behaviors. No problem. You when you when you answered because you called in and when when uh, when when we started talking, you were like, "I'm I, I'm a bad multitasker," and I was like, "What happened?" And and you're like, "Oh, I'm at Lowe's and I'm I have a gardening obsession. And I feed my family from my backyard uh, every summer, and and so that's what's going on." I'm like, "Oh, this is really interesting." So so that's good to hear that you're uh, you know you're. You've got that uh, that going for yourself there. Are you, what are you planning on doing with all that uh, compost and manure? Then I mean, obviously you're going to use it for uh, gardening, but God, this is I'm going to like just sound like the least cool person on the planet. But um, you know, I just I'm really interested in like biointensive gardening and 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 biodiversity and sort of not like some crazy prepper stuff, but actually just sort of like you know, not sitting in front of the tube, but actually just doing things and, and gardening and, and having an orchard. I'm trying to do an heirloom cider apple orchard up in my country place and just, um, you know, I don't know, the stuff you grow, it just tastes better and it's kind of a, it buys you a little tiny bit, at least an illusion of freedom um, from the, you know, from the giant hamster wheel and I don't know, I just, I just, I dig it. Everything tastes better. Well, we could do a whole podcast and, uh, on that. Uh, on that particular, particular <laughs> I, interest. I just, I, yeah, for all the insomniacs in the audience that want to listen to me. Um, I will tell you a funny story, though. It's a true story. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at, um, at Paramount Pictures in the, in, the, uh, in the commissary with an executive there who's a friend and, a, um, and a, been a great supporter of mine. And he was like, man, I love you know, watching what you're doing with these, this gardening and stuff. You know, and my, on your social media. And, and he's like, you know, it's inspired me. I, mean, I want to have your life. I'm like, dude, you're, you're, you're at Paramount, you know? And he's like, I, you know, I said, started a garden, you know, and I planted corn and um, it didn't do very well. And I was like, well, uh, you know, what did you fertilize it with? And he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> yeah, don't go, don't go corn, bro. <laughs> See, that's the kind of insight, uh, useless knowledge. Yeah. Well, well that's, I mean, that's such a that's such a weird thing too. Like so, wait. Like the dude was was growing corn and his corn wasn't doing well and he wasn't fertilizing it right. Did I hear that correctly? No, like corn's a corn's heavy feeder, and I suspect he didn't grow enough plants to have it touch each other to pollinate. And uh, you know, all of which I only know because I did all this stupid shit. My you know made all these mistakes myself. Like you know, nine ten years ago. So yeah, see, I didn't know corn had to touch its, each other in order to to pollinate properly. So I just learned something. So thank you. Well, the tassels kind of have to get pretty. Yeah, they kind of got to get into a situation where they can not really so much touch, but like you know, the stuff has to blow between it. It's it's all that science, you know. Well, like I said, we could do a whole other podcast on uh, on that particular <laughs> subject, but uh, we're going to talk about uh, movies and the movie business because uh, that's what you've uh, dedicated your life to. Um, so we'll get started with the interview proper. I always start off with the same question. The question is, where were you born? Uh, I was born in West Virginia. 
um, to, uh, to a father whose family's been there, like, you know, since the colonial era and a mother, it was like Ellis Island, you know, immigrant, Italian, part Scottish, uh, and just, you know, I'll uh, forget what you see on TV about this place. It's actually a pretty amazing place. It has its challenges like any other place, but it's actually a pretty cool place to live. And I'm kind of the outdoor guy with the, you know, I like to be outside a lot. So it's pretty perfect for that. Yeah. What part of West Virginia are we talking about? Well, I mean, you know, you see on TV like Hatfields and McCoys. That's like three counties, 200 miles from here or something. I mean, I live. Um, in Morgantown, which is a which is a pretty cool university town. I mean, I can throw a rock and hit a sushi bar and a gourmet wine bar from the backyard. So, you know, I don't want to make it sound like outhouses and you know, banjo music because it's pretty much what it's not. Um, so, yeah, I'm not. We actually, I mean, I live like 12 miles from the Pennsylvania border. I live like maybe 80 minute, 80 miles, if even that, from downtown Pittsburgh. Not even that. God, that's not even that. And is uh, is Morgantown where you grew up then too, or was that a different part of West Virginia? Um, yeah, just the adjoining county. Yeah, um, and we lived other places briefly when I was a kid, but but we always kind of came back here. And of course, I lived in LA for a long, long time, in Montreal for quite a while. But this is home. Well, tell me about growing up in uh, West Virginia. Then, like, what were you? What was your childhood like? Um, Norman Rockwell on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, like kind of perfect idyllic um just yeah you know i don't know it was i mean it was great i mean particularly like in the 70s you know as we had you know we had a big drive you know we had drive-ins and we um you know we played a lot i was i was into a lot of sports and i like you know we were very outdoor kids you know canoeing fishing um camping all that stuff and you know again like a lot of you know, football basketball all that and but um, it was just a great time to be a kid because you had the whole monster kid culture. You had a lot of, I was in, really into fanzines and comic books and, um, um, I don't know, man, it was just a really rich, cool childhood. I had cool parents and, uh, I had great friends and I just can't really complain about it. It was all, it was absurdly idyllic. And what did your parents do for a living? Um, at one time they were school teachers, but then my dad, like, he, he was a business owner and um, my mom was a school teacher and then she went to work for a utility and um, they were just, you know, kind of happily, uh, unlike their children who were all like in, you know, inveterate hellraisers. My parents were like teetotalers, like, you know, the really nice family. They were like, they were warden June, you know, and their kids were like, you know, psycho service or something. <laughs> how um, many, are you the oldest or how many brothers and sisters? Oldest, yeah. I have two brothers and a sister. Yeah. Oh, okay. So four. Um, yeah, so I'm the same. I'm the oldest of four, and I have two brothers and a sister as well. Um, uh, what kind of a student were you? Well, um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was a real good student. Um, but, you know, I wasn't interested in like 4.0 or something. I was like the 385 guy, but I wanted to, you know, you, yeah, I wanted to play football. You know, I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, and I wanted to dream, you know, it was like, I was bored and I spent a lot of time, you know, drawing Batman and Dracula in my, my notebooks and, you know, and obsessing over when I was going to have enough money to make a super eight film or something. And, um, you know, I just, you know, look, I think education's hugely important, but I think a lot of the way, particularly back then that it was delivered was kind of bullshit. And, um, I kind of caught on early that, you know, that you could sort of game the system and, and just ignore the busy work and, um, you know, and be kind of an autodidact and pursue the things that you were really interested in. You could probably do okay. And so that was my thing. I just, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really need the certificate. I, I needed praise. Don't get me wrong. I wanted recognition. I just didn't particularly care if it came from the local high school. Right. Right. Well, when were you first, because you said you were obsessing over when you got, you know, when you had enough money to make your first Super 8. When did you first get interested in film? When did that passion first arise? You know, it's, um, I was really, uh, I just keep going on how lucky I am. You know, uh, I had, um, uh, I had two like interesting grandfathers and my my mom's dad was, uh, he was like the classic early adopter. Um, he was this Italian American coal miner and he was, a, he was a really good dude. I mean, he, uh, he, um, 
he could have a crazy temper, but it was all nothing. Like he actually never did anything. He would just yell and, but nothing ever, there was no consequence. And he got me interested in everything from like fishing to magic. Like he was into magic for a while. He wanted to do magic tricks. And so, and you know, I wanted to do magic tricks, but he had, he had like, I think in the late forties had gotten uh, into eight millimeter whole movie making and he stuck with it, you know? And so a lot of times we would have these family movie nights and he would show, I remember being probably four or five years old. And it, to me, it was just like, it was magic. I mean, everything about it, the smell of the, you know, the dust burning off the projector bulb and the, um, just everything just sort of had this smell and this warm Kodachrome glow. And, and I just couldn't believe that you could do that. And, and I don't know, you know, that just kind of triggered it. And, and so I was like, well, you know, I, if I can get paid to do this, I want to do this. And, um, it just kind of evolved organically out of that. Yeah. So f- four or five though. I mean, so that's, that's about as early as you can possibly get. Um, I mean, did you see a path yeah. to it for yourself? Like, did you kind of, were you kind of like, like, uh, cause I mean, even back then, I mean, there, there was, you know, I mean, even like Spielberg and them hadn't, they didn't really come out until the seventies. Was there, uh, was it obvious that you could, you could become that, you know, even, even back when you were that age? Um, you know, the reason that I think it was somewhat obvious is that, I mean, for one thing, you know, all of the, all of your, all the delivery of the pop culture message was, was fairly focused. So when there were directors who were famous, you sort of knew who they were even, I mean, I, I guarantee you before I was nine years old and not because I was a cinephile, but I knew, I knew who Alfred Hitchcock, Fellini, and not because I'd seen a Fellini picture, but they talked about him all the time. I knew who Chaplin was. I knew who Orson Welles was, but that was another story. Cause my mom, my mom's answer to every question was Orson Welles. You know, be like, mom, who's the smartest guy that ever lived? I'm pretty sure it was Orson Welles. Hmm. Mom, did anybody ever read the or- Encyclopedia Britannica from beginning to end? I'm, I, I, Orson Welles did. So I grew up thinking Orson Welles was like, you know, Wizard of Oz. I didn't mean, know. I think he was this brilliant guy. And I, so I was sort of gravitated towards that. And funny enough, one of the first people that I remember being aware of being a movie director was because of something I read. I was a pretty good reader early and I was in second or third grade and Blake Edwards married Julie Andrews, you know, Blake Edwards who created 10 and the pink Panther and all that. And, and, you know, Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. And the funny thing was, is that Blake ended up being, you know, a big, a big, person in my life and in my brother's lives and his son is a very very dear friend and who knew you know right like right. who knew so Blake was very very much um on my radar so I knew they did something I didn't I didn't quite know what they did I probably my vision of what a director did initially was probably filtered through some bad television shows sitcoms or something you know you you sort of had that um caricature in your mind or whatever but I don't honestly, it was such an incredibly creative time. Like I said, there was so much stuff generated to inspire a kid that, you know, I was too stupid to know that it was like, uh, you know, I was attempting something incredibly impossible. Well, what kind of like, because, I mean, if you if it started with the, the movies that you saw when you were, the, the home movies that you saw when you were really little and then it just kind of progressed from there, when did you start going to like the theater and starting to like develop your taste in in the movie industry and, and different artists and things? Well, you know, my, our parents would take us, you know, periodically. And I, you know, several years ago, Tarantino said something and I thought it was so great because... You know, when I hear these people, you know, and they talk about, you know, who are your big influences? And it's like, oh, well, you know, I mean, Godard and Fellini. And I mean, you know, and, and you know, at some point in my, in my life in film school, yeah, I encountered Fellini and I fell in love with him. But for me to say that this was some major sort of fundamental influence on me is utter horseshit. Um, I remember early on, I remember seeing um, uh, the first few films I saw. My mom took me to see Thomasina which was about this cat. It was sort of a magical movie about a cat and a witch who wasn't really a witch. She was like an herbalist, which is funny now, you know, uh, that I'm into all this stuff. And I kind of married a woman who's like this Susan Hampshire character from Thomasina. And it starred Thomas or uh, Patrick McGowan, who was, you know, in the prisoner and in and, and scanners. And this is, was a brilliant actor and someone I, who ended up looming large in my life as a, from a distance. I never met him. Um, but Thomasina was this, uh, I, I think it profoundly affected me because it sort of 
deconstructed magic and superstition in a way that that really has periodically appealed to me. I don't like um, big goofy displays of stuff. I like really sort of subtle. I like the idea of the plausible, and so I think that affected me. Um, my parents, I remember they took me to see to, to Kill a Mockingbird, and that just really jacked me up. I mean, um, I just still, I return to the movie a lot. I think it's incredible. Um, but I think, honestly, they, there was a revival of Sound of Music, and that was like a punch in the face. Um, and I, I know it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly politically incorrect to discuss the film, but you can't dismiss the craftsmanship. I mean, you know, I, you think people weren't aware 40 years ago, 50 years ago that, you know, that this movie had some problems with race or it's treat or, you know, it's revisionist history or whatever. I mean, please, but the craftsmanship of it is, is for me, it's still worthy of study. And I, um, you, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how a six-year-old was supposed to know that, you know, that he was supposed to condemn something. He was just like, my God, the color, you know, and, and the scope of it. And, um, I don't know. You know, after that, then there were just little things. You know, I remember just being home on a rainy afternoon and maybe eight years old, nine years old, and Hammer Films, uh, Horror of Dracula, or Brides of Dracula. I can't remember which one I saw first. I saw one of them first. But that just messed me up. You know, I hadn't even seen Lugosi or Karloff yet. I hadn't been permitted to see them. And I, you know, was able to see this. I'd seen Dark Shadows, the TV show. You know, I knew what vampires and stuff were. Mm -hmm. Then I see this crazy, you know, Hammer film with all this blood and these hot chicks and violence and you know i was in well who do you consider your influences when it comes to you know screenwriting and directing and all that like besides uh, cause you mentioned um, like hitchcock and things but uh is there anybody that, that well, really looms yeah, large really i mean uh dead center of it all is um it is, is absolutely um terrence fisher and george romero um and for me to suggest otherwise is just, you know, it would be ludicrous. <laughs> but uh, Fisher, um, you know, with all the Hammer stuff, the the Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, you know, the Draculas and the Frankensteins, and there was an elegance and a literary quality to the work that was um, that affected me deeply. And, and and as much as the film, the films, there was a book that I got when I was about thirteen or fourteen called A Heritage of Horror. It was a, it was really, I mean, I actually, I, I heavily recommend it. It's written by a guy named David Peary, P-I-R-I-E. He's my Facebook friend. Um, and it really exposed me to the literary possibilities of film and the fact that film could actually be, you know, critiqued and broken apart and, and, and that it had codes and, and meanings that, you know, anyway, it was just a very, very cool thing. And, um, and then George Romero, um, Funny enough, the first Romero picture I saw was not Night or Night of Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead, but actually went to a convention and saw Martin. And I would say I went into that theater as a little kid or as a teenager, and I came out as a grown-up, and I never saw film the same way again. And I met George the next day, and I met um, Tom Savini and, um, and Mike Gornick, who was, um, who was George's cinematographer. And they all three, you know, they, they mentored me for years, and, and George was still prominent in my life and, and meant, you know, mentoring me and being a, someone I just had incredible respect and, and affection for, you know, till, till he passed away. Um, so, you know, and it was only, like I said, it was like 80 miles away. And so, you know, he, he and Mike, they created uh, opportunities for, for a kid from the middle of nowhere to, to work on a movie. And I got to, um, I was an extra on Night Riders and then got to actually work as a PA on Creep Show and, that was just phenomenal. You know, six months on a movie, you know, one every day you're meeting somebody cool. Hey, you know, here's Stephen King. Yeah. What, uh, what part of creep show did you work on? All of it. All of it. All of it. I was there the first day I was there. It was like in the nineties temperature. And the last day I was there, it was snowing. Where the hell did you guys amazing. film that? <laughs> how, how was that? Where, where'd you guys film that at? Um, primarily in Plumborough outside of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. uh, in fact, I went back for the first time since 1981. I went back about six months ago and it was, um, overwhelmingly emotional. Actually, I was shocked at how I felt. And then to, to complicate it, um, we, we drove up around over the hill up around behind it. A couple of miles is, um, where we shot, um, you know, um, 
Billy King, you know, Billy's house, you know, Joe King, uh, Stephen's son, you know, who plays the little kid, you know, in the wraparound. Yeah, yeah. And behind it is the airstrip from Dawn of the Dead. And I said, hey, guys, do you I was with some guys and I said, hey, do you want to see the airstrip from Dawn? And we, you know, and it really pretty much looks the same. And as I was pulling out of the airstrip, I got the horrible news that Pat Booba, who was a wonderful man and was George's editor on a lot of those films and was an editor, one of the editors, um, well, he, was, he edited, he just edited a lot of stuff for George, uh, had passed away. So it was really kind of eerie, you know. Um, yeah, what are the odds that, of that? Um, it very strange. Um, <laughs> that's kind of comes up my life. So. Yeah. Well, uh, so I, I'm I'm curious. How did you first like? And I know this is it's going to be difficult to sum this question up in you know, uh, in, you know, a couple, in a, you know, a small answer. But how did you get involved? in the movie business to begin with, like you said, you went to film school, you had an interest in it when you were a kid, you were, you did all the usual, you know, sort of things you were drawing in your, in your notebooks and, you know, you're a George Romero fan and all this, but how did you actually, a lot of, a lot of people do that. So how did you actually turn that into a career in filmmaking and in the movie business? Like what was the, how did you make it uh, from here to there? I would say, well, yeah, I mean, the general answer is too stupid to quit. That's what I always, like, I want to have that on my tombstone. It was just too stupid to quit. I mean, an intelligent person would have quit like seven or eight times over the course of my career. Um, But, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's really easy to sort of like look back and it looks like you have this master plan and when in fact, you know, you try things and some things work and some things don't. And I think I don't, I think that I did sort of have a dimly, I did have a bit of a strategy in that I knew that, that I had a sense that networking was important and that trying to meet people that could help me or that could be allies or that I could help them or that I could learn from was probably a good thing. And so, you know, I was, I, I've never been the best at maintaining relationships, but I, but I certainly cultivated them. And I, you know, I did a fanzine before I even, you know, I was just finished up high school and I did a fanzine. And, you know, some of the people that bought that fanzine that were fans themselves that are now professionals in the industry, like I started with those relationships. You know, like when I got to Hollywood, a guy that I had corresponded with who was a few years older than me and had directed a couple of really low, low budget horror movies in Florida was in L.A. and he was making movies and he put me to work. Mainly he put me to work because I think I would work for like, you know, literally like $5 a week. (laughs) But once those credits are on your resume, nobody's looking at pay stubs. They're looking at experience. Did you do this? And, you know, and I think it's really interesting. My, that particular person, my first contact with them was probably 1979 for my bedroom in West Virginia, you know, by snail mail. And, you know, so we were, we were chatting it up on uh, social media and private messages last week. I mean, that's, if you think about it, that's like kind of phenomenally powerful. Um, I think. You know, yeah, well, and, 40 um, years, it's a 40 year gap there. So that's, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. And, um, but I think, you know, I think that the proximity to George and Mike and Tom, you know, I mean, Tom's still a big part of my life. Um, that, that was, uh, that was luck, but it was also, you know, you take advantage of it and you prove yourself. And so when I went to LA to go to school, you know, I could say, hey, look, I, you know, I have this experience and I'd met people in the movie that were out there and you at least, you know, you could talk to people. And but I think what really um, facilitated a lot of things for me. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like it was always something else. I mean, if you work hard, I mean, I'm not an idiot. I mean, I worked hard. I had talent. I know that. I'm not, but the MTV revolution took off. And quite honestly, they needed bodies. There was so much demand for product and not enough people to make it. And a lot of established Hollywood people in either TV or film or even commercials, they didn't want to touch it. You know, they didn't, they, they thought it was the wild west. There was no real hierarchy in place. They were, the budgets were not what you might've gotten for a commercial. So for a kid like me, you know, who was competent and would show up on time. And actually sometimes I'd get hired by quote unquote producers on music videos who actually didn't know anything about filmmaking. They'd been pulled in because they knew somebody and they were organized. But they didn't even like, I remember doing this job. They go, we got to put a camera into water. What do we do? I was like, don't you guys know about, you know, Burns Oceanographic? You can rent this. I had no idea. And it, now people are like, well, you know, you Google it. Well, you didn't Google it then. And um, 
I don't know. It was just, and it was the wild west. It was really, really the eighties in Hollywood were um, actually, it was pretty incredible. And I was very, very blessed. Yeah. It sounds like it was, it was just kind of a, a combination of right place, right time, but then also uh, a dogged persistence and uh, networking uh, abilities. Yes. And those, all three of those things kind of coincided to, to, to sort of, ca- you caught this wave and, uh, and you made use of it. Uh, and, you know, I would say there's one other aspect. And I think that every time I didn't do this, um, my career lagged. And every time that I followed up it, it, in the period, and it's complicated because as a writer, sometimes, you know, you're interested, you're like, oh, I want to go look at this for a while. And then it seems like nothing came of it, but it informed, you know, it informed your thought processes and it informed maybe where you were going to go with the story and, um, and may not, you know, may not emerge for years, but it, I, I think that people ignore um, advances in technology and changes in workflow and even trends in demographics and audiences uh, to their peril. And it, as long as I, I you know, it, it's important. I always have to remind myself to sort of stay engaged in, um, in where things are going, because a lot of my friends who now, unfortunately, have had to leave the business or are kind of being left behind. Quite frankly, they just didn't adapt. And I mean, I know that sounds really cold and I, I hate it. You know, I don't, I'm not saying that like, ha ha. I mean, I didn't, you know, I just necessity forced me to kind of adopt some, some new practices and to take advantage of others and to break down maybe some of my own personal prejudices towards some aspects of storytelling, whether it was like, you know, making a two and a half minute branding film. Um, you know, I mean, I, I did, I was really lucky to get to write comic books and, if you'd asked me to write a comic book in 1992, I would have told you to piss off. I'd have been like, I don't do that. I'm a movie director. I do this. Well, that, you know, that would have been dumb, but uh, you know, I had no shortage of tone. So, so adaptability, uh, so now, you know, adaptability, I mean, it's, it's hugely important. Um, you have done so much. Like you mentioned, I mean, you have a 40 year career in this business at this point doing all sorts of things. And I, I, I was going, I was researching you and, uh, and I'm like, there's so many specific things that I wanted to ask you about, but if, unfortunately, I only have an hour to, of time to use. Um, like, I wanted to ask you, I want to ask you about working with David Fincher on the Paul Abdul music video. You know, I want to go through uh-huh. every single movie that you've made and and screenplay and like talk to to you about those experiences. But um, I I really had to kind of pick and and choose my spots. So I, the questions that I gave you are more kind of general. Uh, uh, questions as far as the the, the business, so I'm going to get into those uh, now. Um, the first one is: uh, Do you prefer writing or directing movies, and why? I don't think you know. I think it depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it depends on the day. Uh, for me, and and I really don't mean this to be facetious. That line is so blurred now that I'm writing when I'm directing. And in a sense, I'm directing when I'm writing. Um, in fact, you know, I mentioned Blake earlier. Blake and I had a car. I did an interview with Blake once. I wanted to interview him about his process. I was really proud of the interview. It was in a magazine called Midnight Marquee, and I was really glad I got to do it. But we really talked about how, you know, you do it. After a while, it becomes a very reflexive part of it, like sneezing or blinking or something, you know. And so, you know, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a clear line. I, I know that. I know for George... Uh, we talked about that a couple of years ago and it was the same thing. You know, you, you know, sometimes when you really know your story and you really know what you're doing and you've written that you get on set and honestly, you're so minimally affecting what's happening there because you've already kind of shot listed it. You've talked to your DP. You're like, this is what I want to have happen. You've cast it right. They know it's, it's just going to happen. I mean, I'm not saying you could take a nap, you know, in your trailer, but you know, you did the directing. Um, and in those instances, does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's just, it's not, it doesn't begin and end with action and cut. Right. Yeah. It's a non-end, it's a never-ending process in a way. Right. I mean, and, right. and they also say so. just, just from an artistic standpoint, no art is ever really complete either. So you're always going to be looking oh, back God. and going like, oh, I wish I would have lit this this way or, you know, something like that. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have a lot of contempt for the vast majority of my work. <laughs> so 
Um, well, this kind of ties in. Which film that you, you've made uh, would you consider was like the easiest production or the smoothest production? And which one was the hardest or most uh, problematic production? Well, you know, I mean, I think that depends on, like, you know, are you the, are you the director or are you the producer? Because a lot of times I was a producer and, you know, um, production wasn't hard for me. Um, but, um, gosh, you know, the easiest There's... probably was I did this film that I don't talk about much because I really did it because I just had a baby and I needed a check. And, um, and it was not what I would call signature film. It wasn't really, and it was just, you know, um, no disrespect to anybody. I just didn't want to do it. Um, it, it just did not fit my life plans. And, but, you know, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. It's like, you know, you can take this money or not. And so I kind of entered the project pretty resentful, um, which I realized is stupid, but I mean, I knew I was going to give my all. I wasn't going to let people down. And so I decided, you know, what can I get out of this other than money? And, you know, being here with my, with my, my new wife and baby and having this kind of wonderful home life that I'd never really had, you know, in a relationship. And, um, so I decided that I was going to throw out my old way of working and I would try things like no shot lists. You know, I would go in and I would block and I would just kind of, I mean, occasionally if there was an action sequence, I would do it. And, um, and it was on a really tight schedule. And while I don't like the movie at all, um, I, uh, it was the, it was wonderful. <laughs> I had a ball <laughs> and I learned so much because I said, well, I just, I'm just not going to use a net this time. I'm not going to like, you know, stand over this with an iron grip. And, um, I'm, I think it was, a, it was, that was pretty wonderful. And a lot of people, I loved everybody on the film. I mean, I just, um, in fact, I just saw a, a, a couple weeks ago, I was in LA and we had a premiere of a, film that I produced and Joe Montaigne was there and I hadn't seen, he starred in the movie, you know, and I hadn't seen Joe in all these years. I was like, Oh man, you know, sorry about that movie. And he's like, are you kidding? I had a ball, you know, I got to, it was a great payday and we had so much fun and children love the movie. And I'm like, oh, okay, I've been feeling bad about it for a while. You know, well, what was the um, movie called again? Oh, I hate this. It's like, I don't want to trash things. It's called airspeed. Airspeed. It's just like a little, it's a children's film. It's like a little girl, like a plane gets damaged and she's got to land a plane. Oh, okay. And it's like, you know what I mean? It's like airport for little kids. I mean, and it is literally, you know, it's for eight year olds, you know, and, and, um, it just, anyway. But, but you're, it sounds like, I mean, do you think that your sort of approach to that kind of helped with the, the, with how smooth it went? Because you were kind of like, I'm just going to. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I did? Cause I had no time. We had no prep time and we had no shoot time because of, because we had to shoot in a real, real air traffic control tower and we mm. were up against Christmas and, and there were so many shoots in Montreal. Like I was, I, I had none of my old crew, zero, like no one that had ever worked for me except my producer, honest to God, my brother was one of my producers, my regular producer up there. Um, honestly, the primarily the entire crew were absolute strangers to me and, um, uh, a wonderful crew, by the way, but because there was so little time, you know, like the, the second night I was in Montreal, I took my wife and kid in, in the cold and we went down to the to Indigo bookstore and I went to the big table where they had the remainder, you know, books and, and usually a bunch of big art books and I found three giant books of Edward Hopper paintings because I loved Hopper oh, and yeah. I was thinking about how an air traffic control tower you know would be like you know a big glass window like in Nighthawks and that inspired me and so three days later when we finally were able to hire an art crew I walked in and I dropped those three big books on the table and I go there's your color schemes that don't even wait for me and they went they go, we love this and I went, man, you know, maybe if I would deliver this much information, you know, people will, uh, people will make the same movie I'm making. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, uh, that's so cool yeah. that like, you know, cause you said like, it's just this kid's movie or whatever, like an airplane for kids. But then the color scheme is based on Nighthawks by Edward Hopper. All of a sudden that lends it a weight, you know, that you wouldn't have guessed, you know, otherwise. So that, that's little <laughs> things like that are pretty cool. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I hope Clint did something. <laughs> you know, but, um, um, listen, I don't want to waste anything, you know, I don't think, you, I don't, and I don't think anything has to go to waste. I think every experience can contribute to making you, you know, better at what you do. And, um, and I'm not going to just sit and resent things. I can't, I don't look back. I don't, 
I don't care about mistakes I made or any of that unless it hurts somebody. I don't care. You know, I'm more interested in going forward. Well, which part of the, the sort of the process do you enjoy the most uh, when it comes to, to making movies? I do love to shoot. I mean, I really do, depending on what I'm doing. Like, I just did a great, I can't show it or even talk about what it is yet, but I just did this kind of big branding campaign for a college athletics program, a big prestigious program. And they let me go do what I want. And I kind of did a kind of big Game of Thrones style action thing. And um, I, I wanted it to rain and it rained for three days. Like it rained every day I shot. Like it was cold. It was like February or March. It was really cold and rainy. And we were, you know, uh, down on the James River, you know, in Virginia was like getting bad weather and, and people were just miserable. And I was the happiest person you've ever seen. Like, I, 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 I didn't care. I mean, I just didn't. I was like, it was so fun to shoot that. And I had storyboarded it really meticulously. And it was exactly what I wanted. And um, I had just been given carte blanche and so much support. And I had a great crew, you know, and I had plenty of people. And, like, that was awesome. That was, like, super, super fun. Um, you know, sometimes, like, you know, baby needs a new pair of shoes. And it's like, hey, I'm going to go do this film. Um, that's going to, you know, uh, persuade people that they should do X I mean, it's boring. And I try to find joy in it and I try to serve my clients and I try to get as passionate as I can about it. But, you know, you're not sitting there going, Oh God, I can't wait to do the close up of the syringe. You know, that's not, <laughs> but, but you know, when I'm really in the zone writing and, um, I'm just really disgusted with myself right now as a writer. So probably right now I'm not that excited about myself as a writer. I'm not finishing anything like I should not. I, all my new projects are stalled and I'm pissed off with myself. So yeah, I've been there. That's uh, that's always fun, but you never know when it's going to, when the spark's going to come back or when something's, something's going to happen and you're like, Oh, I know how to end that scene. Now, finally, it just came to me. So you never know. Uh, yeah. Yep. So what do people not realize about making movies in your opinion? Like what's the, um, you know, like what's there, there are a number, I think there are a number of misconceptions, uh, some of which, you know, are, are kind of newer maybe, or some, you know, conditions are changing. Um, I don't think people understand how boring it is. Um, I think that people resent or they, or intimidated or whatever by the hierarchies or by what is this vernacular? Why do people speak this way? Why, um, you know, why does this take so long, this or that? And it's like, you know, if, if you, if you really want to know, you're going to have to take some time to figure it out. Um, and even then it's not going to mean anything to you because you didn't, you didn't really work on it. And so, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it's just like, you know, when you, when you stand around and ask stupid questions of, of your plumber or the guy working on your furnace, they're going to be like, who is this idiot? And they're right, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're, they're in their world and they know their stuff. And so, you know, there's a lot of just, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that's part and parcel of filmmaking. And there's what I encounter, you know, because I, I like to teach and I don't teach as much as I'd like, but I do enjoy. In fact, I, I'm the, I'm the, the director of the George A. Romero filmmaking program from outside of Pittsburgh. It's Douglas. Um, and I get frustrated sometimes with students because, you know, they just want it all to be now. And film actually runs on budgets and schedules and, and releases, paperwork, contracts. Those things are critical to the process. And, you know, again, not to draw George like a gun, but, you know, George was adamant about that. George, people like George Romero was a maverick. George Romero was a craftsman and a professional. He respected budgets. He respected schedules. He knew that the stuff couldn't get done if it wasn't organized. And, you know, for a lot of people who just want to run around and wave a camera around, that's not sexy. But, you know, that's why there's a lot of turnover in the film business. you got to be so disciplined. You, know, you were mentioning Fincher. I'm going to tell you something. Fincher's the most disciplined person you've ever met. Yeah, I, I, I could machine. see that. I could see that. And I've heard, I mean, I've, I've other people that I've talked to have said like, it would be an honor to get yelled at by him, uh, <laughs> to be, to be working for him and have him ask, why is this, you know, you know, why is this not, oh. not up to par, you know? 
Um, and, and you know, and here's the thing: is David hard on people? Sure, he is. You know who David's hard on? David. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, and that's why it works for him. Well, it seems like, I mean, there's, because, I mean, you get, it kind of runs the gambit, right? Because you have people like James Cameron who are notorious for being absolutely, like, like, neurotic, you know, when it comes to, and it's like people are, you can tell in interviews where they're talking to people like their presence is intimidating. But then you have, like, like people like Spielberg who also are known for getting things done and who are, who are considered way more, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to say nice. Nice is such a shitty word, but just the, they can get it done without screaming at people. You know, um, they still, um, it's still, it's still a, know, and I, you know, and having, having only worked with one of those three gentlemen <laughs> and, uh, being enamored of all three of them. Um, you know, I'm sure there's times that, uh, that, that they have uh, to Mr. turn Silver it on, could, could lose it if he had to. Right, right. Um, I think he's just a consummate communicator. Um, and I think that he's just so direct and clear on what he wants. And he surrounds himself with the best people. And I think that they look at it and they, I mean, look, here's the flip side, you know, Woody Allen, he doesn't want to talk to the actors. He barely talks to the crew. He just keeps saying it's in the script. It's in the script. And, um, he casts the film so that he gets what he wants. And his people have been with him forever. Well, now, you know, I guess he may not get to make another film. I don't, I don't know. Um, but he's certainly not going to communicate. He's not going to be, he's not going to be a tyrant. He's not a screamer. He's none of those things. You know, but he made a whole bunch of, of, you know, pretty good movies. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's earned his place in the canon, so to speak. Um, you know, it's it's a shame that everything now is couched in these terms. I'm, tr- trust me, I'm, you know, it, we're overdue in this country to look in the mirror and to make some serious changes. And I applaud that, you know. I just get nervous when, you know, it's like, can, can we even discuss anything mm-hmm. without... Um, you know, it being subjected to some sort of a litmus test. I think that's terrifying. Um, you know, um, we can, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. I don't know where I'm, what I'm going for, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop watching certain films. Um, while people are, I don't know. It's just, it's just, well, I could, I could see like Eddie Vedder said one time, uh, the guy from Pearl Jam, he said, love the music, not the musician. You could say that about just about any sort of art. You could say love, love the art, not the artist, and that sums it up right there. Yeah. I think. And, and by the way, you know, I mean, you know, people that are doing horrible, creepy things on set, root them out. You know, root them out. You, you should be able to go to work on a level playing field and be treated decently. You know, women particularly, um, they should be able to. Fifty-two percent of the world's population, they ought to, they they shouldn't, you know, just be constantly uh, under assault. Uh, whether it's, you know, verbally or just silently, you know, I mean, it is, we, you know, we should be getting better. We should be evolving. I just, you know, I, I just get uncomfortable when we start having cultural purges, you know, yeah. where does it end? Where everybody and, starts know, looking over their you know, shoulder. It, you know, let's be honest, you know, me just saying these things, you know, it probably, you know, in some people's minds, you know, make me suspect. And I'm, you know, I, I don't think I'm the problem, but maybe I am, I don't know. No, I don't think because it's it, you, like I just said. You know, if it gets to the point where people that haven't done anything are looking over their shoulder, then it's it's a little. Then you've gone too far. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong yeah. with saying that. Like Matt Damon caught a bunch of shit when he said each situation sort of needs to be judged on its own on its own playing field. Sort of. I don't think that n- nobody's going to disagree that Harvey Weinstein is a creep. You know, but oh Garrison Keillor, yeah. who who got who got some shit. Like, I mean, he did some things that were. I mean, it's it just wasn't on the same level. I don't care who, who, uh, who you are it, making somebody uncomfortable is one thing. And then it, it's, it's not good, but then you also have what Harvey did, which was just, like I said, nobody's going to well, disagree that that guy deserved what he got. Know, I'm always sort of, no, and I'm always sort of loved it. First of all, you know, um, I mean, I would just, God, I just hope this guy goes down, like yeah. goes down hard. Um, but then when the smoke clears from that particular thing with him, and again, you know, I also think, I mean, do we need to stop there? Let's also point out, like, you know, people, it, it, his, his environment was an, it was an abusive workplace, regardless of gender, um, regardless of age, regardless of, of anything, you know, any criteria you want to apply, orientation, you know, believe anything. This guy was, people should be able to go to work. Yeah, no matter what you're doing. with that. 
Yeah, no matter okay. what you're doing. So root this creep out. And But here's the thing. This isn't limited to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, I'm not trying to shine the spotlight away. I mean, I've known a lot of creepy Hollywood people. But, you know, the majority of people I know out there are really good people trying to feed their family and get through the day. Okay? You know? Um, these are poster children. Um, but him in particular, you know, and uh, just, yeah, good riddance to, to bad rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so shifting gears here a little bit, uh, this next question, I guess I could, I'll ask it like this. For you, what was the hardest part about establishing yourself in the film business? Because you said like you were working, you were willing to work for five bucks a week at the beginning. Um, when um, did you notice, when did you notice like, hey, I'm doing this for a living and I'm not worried anymore about the sort of, you know, about having work or having a network to, to draw from? Never. never. I thought that, that might be the answer. No. Yeah. No, you never, I never feel that. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, being bored and wealthy is very helpful for getting in the film business because you can weather the storm. It's very helpful for any of the arts to have money to get you through because a lot of time it's a war of attrition. You know, can I hold it? I was saying a really, really dear son, another a really great filmmaker and a guy I love a lot. Um, John Dahl. Um, if you, I don't know if you know John's work, but like kill me again, red rock West, last seduction. Um, he directs a lot of episodes of stuff like Ray Donovan and billions now. And John's just a wonderful person. But we were talking a few years ago, and said, you know, John, sometimes I feel like, you know, when we started in this thing, it's like it was World War One, and you climbed out of the trenches and you looked over to your right and there were thousands of guys running and you looked to your left and there were thousands of guys running and they're shooting at you, you know, from the other foxholes. And, and now, you know, it's all these years later and we're, we're running and I look over and I see you way over there and I see Fincher way over here and a few other of my friends and, and colleagues and over my shoulder, I just see nothing but bodies and everybody else is gone. And he goes, yeah, and you know the worst part? They're still shooting at us. Mm-hmm. And it really, you know, I was like, God, man, you know, between the two of us, I think we crafted kind of an interesting metaphor. Um, you know, they're never going to stop shooting at it. Um, so, you know, and I was just, I was very despondent. You know, I didn't, it was, it was a point I'm like, am I ever going to get to direct a feature? I was directing commercials in LA and I hated it. Um, I don't think I was good at it. Because I, I did, it wasn't what I wanted. And the funny thing is now I'm really good at it and I really enjoy it. And um, I think the pressure's off of me. You know, like this last movie, you know, I, I, when I finished the movie, I told my wife, I was like, you know, I hope I get to make more movies. But if I don't, that's all right. Because I have nothing left to prove. I get to make the film I wanted to make. I get, made it the way I wanted to make it. It's, if it doesn't work, it's nobody's fault but mine. Then I can think about other things now. And, that doesn't mean I'm not going to work hard to try to get a film, but my self-esteem is not tied up in it at all. Zero. Yeah. And that's the honest to God's truth. I'm reminded of something that Kevin Smith said, because he almost, he had a heart attack a year ago and, and, uh, and nearly died from it. And he was interviewed and he said, um, you know, as it was happening, he was thinking to himself, you know, I got to make clerks. So basically what you just said, I got to make the movie that I wanted to make. I made it on my terms. And so, you know, if this is it, then, then that's, then, then okay. It, you know, if, if, if I look at my resume, both professionally and personally, um, and they pull the plug on me here and, you know, when I get off the phone, I got nothing to bitch about. Um, nothing. I am, you know, if, if you ask me, you know, like, what are my greatest, you know, my great, I mean, not to sound corny, I mean, it, my wife is like the best person. I'm crazy about her. I've been crazy about her from like about four hours after I met her. I knew within like three days, I'm like, I want to marry her. Um, she's my best friend. She's fantastic. So I got her. I've gotten to do so many cool things that don't have anything to do with film. Um, I, you know, I'm healthy. I'm, I have, I have an embarrassingly rich, volume of friends. I have the greatest friends in all walks of life, you know? Um, and, um, you know, like that, honestly, 
And I'm not like, I have a lot of social anxiety. Like I hate going to concerts and stuff. Now I don't want to be around a bunch of people. I prefer to be alone a lot, but my friends are fantastic. Um, whether it's the people that I hang out with that I played pop Warner football with when I'm 12, when I was 12, or, you know, my LA film friends or my buddies in the comic industry, you know, or the people I meet, like, you know, one of my, one of my close friends right now, like he's, we have a lot of years between us. I mean, he's a good old boy that makes hard cider. He makes damn good hard cider. He's running, he runs a great company and um, he's working hard to make something happen. And he's, you know, he fascinates me. What he's doing fascinates me. And he's got a great family. He's just, you know, he's living an authentic life. And anyway, I'm rambling. I just, I love, you know, I'm a lucky person. I'm a very, very lucky person. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, 40 years, I, I really wish I could get into every little specific thing. I needed to, to buy another like two hours uh, a time for this <laughs> podcast because every so many times I'm like, uh, I'm like, God, the hour goes by so quickly. Um, what uh, what do you see for the future of the business? And I know this is another big question, um, but I mean, like do you see VR playing a role in the next decade or so. Is the superhero trend yeah. ever going to die? Well, you know, Just what I, do I you don't think? Know. You know, sometimes like I'll be really like, like I'll, I'll make a clear prophecy and it'll happen. And then, you know, you know, a lot of times it doesn't, you know, I don't know from VR. I think, that, you know, I, I think that VR is VR. I, I actually don't think it has anything to do with movies. Um, I think that uh, VR is to movies, you know, as roller coasters are to movies. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I, I think that I think that movies and television, dramatic uh, storytelling, serve a purpose. They actually don't require you to be active. They actually want you, and we crave that sort of passivity. We we crave that experience. You know, that whether it's to to escape, to entertain, to provoke, whatever it is, you know. Uh, that it's their, their outcomes are entirely different. I just don't, I think that they missed the boat. And I think, you know, I think it's interesting. I think that Hollywood has slowly recognized, Oh my God, we were making all these movies to apply it to, to uh, appeal to gamers and, and gamers stopped going to the movies and the numbers they were going, the teenage boys quit going. It's like, because they weren't going to the movies to watch a video game that mm-hmm. they watched the, they play the video game at home. They were going to the movie because they didn't want to have to think and react their way through it. They wanted to be entertained. You missed the point. And I, I, honest to God, I really, really believe that. And I think that's why over the last five or six years, we've actually started seeing, far back in 2011, we started to see some consistently some really good filmmaking um, and, and incredible television filmmaking. And um, so, you know, yeah, I don't, I mean, you know, I am I optimistic? Yeah, I think I'm going to be able to, as nervous as I am, I think I'll be able to work as long as I want to. Does that mean it'll be a movie or a web series? Does it mean that I will do that? I will spend a year under contract to a resort making cool films about their food and their golf and all that. Uh, yeah, because it's not like y'all gonna pick up books again. This is where you get everything. This is what you want. You want the content. You want to eat as much of it as possible. Me too. So somebody's got to make it. Or as a friend, a guy named Bob Shrek, he was the editor of Batman. He was editing the Batman uh, portion of DC Comics a few years ago. And I was, we were sitting outside of the con in San Diego, and I was thinking about maybe, which I ended up not doing, but I thought about pitching DC. I didn't want I just wanted to do creator own, but I thought, well, maybe. And I said, do you think, you know, what do you think work-wise? And he goes, Bob, the machine's got to eat. And I think that's true. You know, the machine's got to eat. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm not hung up on if If people decide they want all their movies to be 30 seconds long, who's to say what's right and wrong? Mm-hmm. And then we'll, we'll deliver those. In fact, we already do, you know. And, but, you know, people say, oh, my God, but I don't want a 30-second movie. But at the same time, you're consuming 13-hour movies on Netflix when you watch the run of Punisher, you know, in one fell swoop. Right. That's what you're doing. So, you know, our attention spans in some ways are shorter and in some ways they're not shorter at all. They're actually longer in a way. You know, we're willing to binge watch. I think it's all fa- I'm just, I'm excited. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm fired up right now and I'm great. I'm, you don't know a more grateful person. Well, because what you just said kind of reminded me of, uh, you mentioned earlier in the 80s that with the MTV revolution, you said 
like the machine had to eat back then too, right? And now absolutely the the it's even more open because of the internet. So that's there, there's going to be so much to do. There's a downside to that too because there's so much more of it so that it's going to, it's going to be more difficult for things to get singled out and for quality to, to sort of rise to the top. Um, but, uh, um, well, yeah, but I mean, and I don't know, and I agree to an extent, but I will say that what it's done is generally it's, it's deflating budgets, but honestly, budgets needed deflated. And where is it written that people should have made the obscene amounts of money that some people were making, but it, you know, I hate for the crew to get punished. I don't want to get punished, but by the same token, you know, I'd like to make a film about permaculture, which is a form of sustainable agriculture that I'm doing on my farm. And, you know, if I make that, I don't think that 20 million people are going to line up to see it. But you know what? 600,000 will. And if 600,000 will, I get to make the film I want to make. And it's profitable. So, okay. Well, so I got two more questions for you here. And then this is... uh... This is, they're both pretty quick. Uh, which films from uh, the last, because you mentioned, like, I think it was 2011 was the year you mentioned. We've seen some good filmmaking. Uh, are there any films that you've seen in the past, we'll say, a decade that uh, you believe will get, will be talked about 40 years from now, just like we're still talking about Dawn of the Dead today? Um, wow. You know, uh, I'm going to say that the landscape has changed in a way that I'm not sure what's really possible. Okay. Uh, in that, because I think culturally the context has changed so drastically that I don't know if that can even happen. But if you ask me, you know, because if I'm going to say, hey, there were great films made, I mean, I can point to two films right now in the last, just the last few years that I think are both, I'll say the word, I think they're masterpieces. And one's Lady Bird, and one is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Mm-hmm. I think they are, I'll, I don't care what anybody says, the films are incredible um so uh will anybody talk about them or remember about them i don't know you know me and mary you know we're so busy navel gazing i don't know you know i can't i just it's hard to say i got nothing it's hard to say uh and then the final question is uh what's up coming up for you in the future here do you have anything that you want to promote or anything you're working on that you, you want to tell us about um well, you know, my, my film, um, Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is based on my graphic novel, um, is um, should be coming out in November. I'm really pleased and proud of it. I hope people get to see it. It's, a, it's, it's fun. It's a fun Christmas movie. It's a romantic comedy. You know, it's not Dostoevsky. It's, it's light. Um, I am, you know, I'm in development on a couple of things. I'm, I have a, a pretty full slate right now of branding work and commercial work. And I just kind of want to see where everything shakes out with Feast. Um, and then a, a, a big horror picture that I wrote, they're casting right now. And if, if that goes into production, that'll probably, you know, that'll probably change my plans somewhat as well. You know, I just, um, I'm just focusing right now on my craft and, and just becoming a better filmmaker all the time. And that may sound corny, but that's just the reality of it. I'm pushing myself on every job right now. Um, and pushing the form, trying to try and trying things, um, yeah, that's that's about it. And trying to get my uh, cider apple orchard online, so trying to get that thing. Yeah, well, well, thanks for. Uh, I'm, th- like, I'm the worst nerd ever, right? Like I can't, I can't. You know, I'm not a pigeonholed nerd. I'm all over the place. Hey, man, nerds nerds took over a long time ago, so <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be too worried about that. Um, but uh, thanks thanks so much for for coming on, uh, Bob. This is this has been a great uh, a great conversation. Um, I uh, like I said, there's. I really wish we had more time because there's so much more I want to get to, but uh, we are up at, against the top of the hour now, and I gotta, I gotta cut this off. Um, so thanks again for coming on, man, um, and uh, good luck with your with your gardening and all that. Uh, and I hope that I hope that goes uh, that goes smoothly for you. And um, you know, well, is there any place uh, you could you, you could tell the, uh, the listeners as to where they can go find your work or uh, any play, any sort of ground right zero now? For you? Um, I just had last month a film I produced called Back Fork, which is a heavy drama that written, directed, and starring uh, Josh Stewart um, that I highly recommend. It's a dark film. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on iTunes or like you know any of your VOD platforms. It's it's been very uh, positively reviewed. The LA Times, Hollywood Reporter. It's a really good film. I'd love for people to seek that out. All right. And, um, you know, um, that's what I can think right now. I don't have any comic books coming out right now. So. Yeah. 
Well, check it out, folks. Um, Bob, uh, hang on the line. I'll give you a proper goodbye after we're done, uh, after I'm off the air. All right, again. But uh, thanks, thanks again for coming on. Uh, great conversation. Everybody else, uh, I will be back next week. My guest, uh, poet, uh, uh, is, is, is a poet uh, named uh, Wynn Cooper. And uh, he is uh, – uh, He's he's been writing since the '80s, so he's got a long, extensive career. But uh, what uh, sort of broke him was Cheryl uh, Crow read a poem of his called "Fun" in the early '90s and turned it into her song. All I want to do is have some fun. The lyrics to that song are the poem. So, uh, going to be talking to him next week. Uh, very much looking forward to it. Um, and I will see everybody then. So, this has been American Winer at PodcastDetroit.com.